This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today, we'll be talking about Nazis in the United States and the Jewish mobsters who worked to stop them. The rise of Nazism before World War II wasn't limited to Germany. In 1933, under the authority of Nazi Deputy Führer Rudolf Hess, a German immigrant to the United States named Heinz Spanknubel formed an American Nazi organization called the Friends of New Germany. The organization was based in New York City, but had a presence in Chicago as well. The five to 10,000 members demanded that German-language newspapers print pro-Nazi articles and used propaganda to counter the Jewish boycott of German goods. Following Congressman Samuel Dickstein's investigations of Nazi and fascist groups in the U.S., Congress formed the Special Committee on Un-American Activities, which was authorized to investigate Nazi propaganda activities and certain other propaganda activities. The conclusion of the investigation and hearings was that the Friends of New Germany was a branch of the Nazi Party in the United States. In 1935, Hess ordered the leaders of the group back to Germany, and the Friends folded. On March 19, 1936, the America Deutscher Volksbund, or German-American Bund, formed in Buffalo, New York, as a follow-up to the Friends. The elected leader of the Bund was Fritz Julius Kuhn, an American citizen who had been born in Germany and was a veteran of the Bavarian Infantry during World War I. The Bund was a huge organization, which divided the U.S. into three Gawa, East, West, and Midwest, with 70 Ortsgruppen, local groups, at the next level down. Each Gau had a leader called a Gauleiter, as well as staff to manage operations. The Bund also set up around 20 training camps, including Camp Nordland in New Jersey, Camp Siegfried in New York, Camp Hindenburg in Wisconsin, Deutschhorst Country Club in Pennsylvania, and Camp Suter in California. Resembling Hitler Youth Camps in Germany, the campers, boys and girls, aged 8 to 18, were taught to speak German and sing German songs, like Deutschland, Deutschland über alles. Campers marched in military drills and practiced shooting rifles, all while wearing their Nazi-style uniforms. The Bund held many rallies and parades, but their most audacious event was held on February 20th, 1939, in Madison Square Garden in New York City. More than 20,000 people attended the pro-American rally. 
scheduled to celebrate George Washington's birthday. A 30-foot-tall banner of Washington, whom they hailed as the first fascist, was flanked by U.S. flags and swastikas. The speeches were filled with anti-Semitic rhetoric and American boosterism. National PR director of the Bund, Gerhard Wilhelm Kuhns, pointed to the thread of white nationalism that ran through American history as protecting the Aryan character of the nation, pointing to such policies as anti-miscegenation laws, the Chinese Exclusion Act, and Jim Crow laws. The speakers called FDR Rosenfeld instead of Roosevelt, claiming he was under the control of rich Jews. The rally also drew thousands of protesters, and the NYPD had 1,700 officers on duty. New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia had allowed the rally to go forward, agreeing with the American Jewish Committee that free speech for everyone included free speech for Nazis. Some protesters managed to enter the rally itself. 26-year-old Jewish plumber Isidore Greenbaum made his way to the stage, just as German-born Fritz Kuhn was saying, Wake up, you, Aryan, Nordic, and Christians, to demand that our government be returned to the people who founded it. Greenbaum fought his way through the guards, jumped on stage, pulled over Kuhn's microphone, and yelled, Down with Hitler! As Greenbaum's grandson later remarked, He had a black eye and a broken nose, but he said he would have done it all again. Greenbaum was arrested and fined for disrupting the rally. He later fought the Nazis with the U.S. Navy in World War II. Greenbaum wasn't the only Jewish American to stand up to the Bund. Abner Longies Willman of Newark, New Jersey, who had run a liquor business during the Prohibition, formed a secret organization called the Minutemen to fight the Nazis. The Minutemen, who operated from 1933 to 1941, would break up Bund meetings using their fists, baseball bats, and stink bombs, and they once attempted to bomb Fritz Kuhn's car. Jewish boxer Nat Arno was one of the first recruits in the group, which may have numbered as many as 200 people, mostly working-class Jewish Americans in their 20s, although the active group was likely smaller. The Minutemen were based in New Jersey, but Jewish gangsters around the country fought the Bund, including in Chicago, Minneapolis, and Los Angeles. In 1939, a New York district attorney prosecuted Fritz Kuhn for embezzling $14,000 from the Bund. He was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. While he was in prison, his citizenship was canceled, and he was interned by the federal government during World War II and deported back to Germany after the war. The German-American Bund collapsed soon after the Madison Square Garden rally. Support for Nazis in the U.S. faded when the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939, and France and the U.K. declared war. In 1941, the U.S. government outlawed the German-American Bund. To help us learn more, I'm joined now by writer Leslie K. Berry, author of the novel 
Newark Minutemen, a true 1930s legend about one man's mission to save a nation's soul without losing his own. But first I'll play a short clip of audio from the 1939 Madison Square Garden rally, which is in the public domain. Introducing the next speaker, I do so with a feeling of personal affection. We love him for the enemies he has made. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Fritz Kuhn. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Americans, American patriots, I'm sure I do not come before you tonight as a complete stranger even to those of whom I have not the honor to face him for the first time. You all have heard of me through the Jewish-controlled press as a creature with horns, a cloven hoof, and a long tail. <laughs> they will say that I am putting over on you a hocus-pocus, and that I am not what I appear to be, or what I say to you is propaganda prepared for me by Mr. Goebbels at the ignition of Chancellor Hitler. For, of course, no German-American citizen can express an opinion that does not conform to the standardized order of the beef prescribed by us for the Santorines, Rabbi Weisses, Antemeyers, and Dickstains. However, you can believe me when I say that I have not the honor to be in the confidence of the Führer. They will surely accuse it's their far-reaching ambition unless you Aryans, Nordics, and Christians wake up and not only speak out in thunder tongues to demand that our government shall be returned to the American people who founded it, but also will put your shoulders to the wheel and act understandingly. We, the German-American Bund, organized as American citizens with American ideals and determined to protest ourselves, our homes, our wives and children against the slimy conspirators who would change this glorious republic into, in, into the inferno of a Bolshevik paradise. We, I say, will not fail you when called upon to give every lawful support in our power in the fight to break the grip and the parasite hand of Jewish communism in our schools, our universities, our very homes. Hi, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Kelly. This is a really interesting angle for me to be presenting on. Yeah, so I uh, am just so blown away by this story. You know, it's one of these, like a lot of the stories that that I cover on this, that I just, I can't believe I didn't know it before. <laughs> I can't believe it's it's there in history and and I had no idea. So talk me through a little bit how you first came to know about these Newark Minutemen and, and got interested in this story. Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, people often ask me if uh, I had 
planned to write or, or wanted to write or have written before. And um, I wasn't really looking for this story. It sort of, it sort of uh, found me. Mm. And the spark of it was that I guess about six years ago now at, at my mom's 90th. And uh, so my mom's 96 and, and still going strong here. But at her 90th, my sisters and I said, let's let's have 90 people there. Let's let's get all the old cousins and friends and everything. And so we rounded everybody up. And um, so just to give you some background, my mom born in 1925. She grew grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and she was the youngest of five kids. And her parents were immigrants who came over during one of the pogroms. And so there were this classic melting pot immigrant family. And so growing up with all that family, we'd heard all these stories of, you know, everything from the crash of 29 to the Great Depression and the brother, one brother stealing milk from the other and how poor they were. And then, of course, you know, the wars and she said they lived through uh, three pandemics and we're, we're only living through one. So so anyway, we we grew up with all these stories. And at this event, they started talking about another story that we were partially familiar with. And that was about her older brother, my uncle Harry. And they started talking about Harry. He was a prize fighting golden glove boxer back in the 30s, of which a lot of Jewish boys were back then. And so they went on about that. And we knew about that story because there's a newspaper article everybody in our family has in the Golden Glove. We have, we have that. But then they started talking about, they said, uh, Esther, my mom, they said, remember when Harry used to come home at three o'clock in the morning and your mom would yell at him for being out there beating up the Nazis. And I kind of did this double take and I'm like, what do you all mean beating up the Nazis <laughs> in Newark, New Jersey? I, I said, you mean when he was in the war? And they're like, no, no, no. There were these uh, Nazis in America. And and they said, you know, especially New Jersey, because that was one of the most populated places and where a lot of the immigrants settled. And it was an organization or a party called the German American Bund. And they were literally a Hitler shadow party whose goal was to rule America from the inside out and uh, become an official Nazi party and put a president up for a candidate. And my uncle was part of a group that was recruited to stop them. (laughs) (laughs) It's just it's such a wild story. You know, it feels like one of these like alternative histories, you know, like what might have happened, but but it really happened. (laughs) Right. No, there's a story. I don't know if you've ever heard of Plot Against America, but uh, that was a story that was a dystopian novel. And I always tell people and that's where actually Charles Lindbergh does become president. Mm -hmm. I always tell people this is the real life prequel to that story. And that's would have happened if if uh, this had all come true. Yeah. So you start with these family stories uh, with your mom and other relatives talking about this. What are some of the other ways that you dug into this? Because then you did more research to to find out like what the heck was going on and, and why why don't we know about it? Yeah. No, I I became possessed with with this story because like you, I, I had never heard of it either. And I asked my kids, I said, did you 
did you guys learn this in history? And they're like, no. And so I became obsessed, possessed with finding out really and truly about this story. And first, just to give you a little bit idea about who these people were, who this party was. So again, Great Depression, before World War II, we're this incredibly divided country. You know, we think we're divided now. It was, we were way divided back then. Nobody wanted to go back to war. Everybody lost trust in America. And so sneaking in uh, in, in that void um, was this group called the Bund. And they were heavily funded by Germany nationwide. And at the top, they had a Fuhrer, American Fuhrer. His name was Fritz Kuhn who divided our country up into three sections. And within each section, there were thousands of cells all reporting up to him, just like the proto, it was like a Nazi prototype of what was, how it was structured in, in Germany. And he created uh, a corporation. It was actually, that was a brilliant part of what he did. It, mm. it was a corporation with six divisions. And like, so one of the divisions was this training division where they would literally train, it was the soldierhood and they would um, smuggle, they smuggled in Nazi uniforms. Um, They trained groups of men, you know, with guns, with uniforms. They would actually use our guns from our NRA because back then the NRA was, if you remember, they would give you a gun for free. So they they took our guns, they went to our National Guard and were trained. They were both trained by some of their um, officers from World War I, but also some of our National Guard trained them in rifling and all of that. And they conspired to commit espionage and sabotage. And that was so one of the units or divisions. They had a newspaper division. And one of the most interesting divisions they had was a real estate division that bought up 25 pieces of real estate across the country. And Fuhrer Fritz Kuhn turned these um, large parcels into Nazi youth camps. And that was that was part of one of the most chilling parts for me that, and, and, and I have a, a website I'll give you at the end and, and you can go on there. I've put pictures and everything, but basically they mirrored the camps in Germany. It was Nazi youth. You only spoke German. You studied um, Mein Kampf and all the other, I mean, from our side, it's propaganda, but all of the other documents, there was physical training, like hard physical training for, I'm talking 12-year-old boys and girls. And it was interesting, one of the resources, so to, to get back to your question, where did I find some of this information? There were two really, really interesting pieces of information beyond some of the 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 things I found, but um, one of them, and I'll go through each of them. But one of them was this book called Wonderlick's Salute, and it was written by it's an out of print book, and um, it was written by in the 1970s by a social studies teacher who came across these Nazi youth camps, and in fact, I believe had one of the children of the children in his class or something. Somebody told me this story. Anyway, he became fascinated with this subject, so fascinated that he quit his job and went around the country finding the children that had been at our American Nazi youth camps, interviewing them. 
And I was able to find this book and he sent away for it. And um, it actually came and, and, and when I opened it, um, actually a couple letters fell out from the children or well, the grown children now. But so that was really interesting to get some of the firsthand uh, stories from these kids that lived at these camps. And the bottom line was the goal was this was a piece of Germany in America and you were living, you know, as a German, not a German American. And eventually as a German, you would take over America or America would be German. <laughs> so in terms of how I, I found this, it, 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 um, it started with uh, my mom after that, that event, we took my sisters and I took sort of took my mom on the road and she's 90, you know, 90 years old. And we made her visit all her old cousins and all the memories they, as they were talking, you know, all these stories came out. And so started interviewing my mom about the time one of her cousins lived right next door to, I'll have to get into this a little bit more, I guess, but the, 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 the boxers were actually under the mafia, the Jewish mafia. And she lived right next door to the hideout of the mafia. And she would talk about the different interactions and, and her dad was actually the barber to the mafia. But just to continue down this line a little bit after we took my mom on the road, started peeling away the story. My mom went to the school in Newark that all the Jewish kids went to called Weekwake High School. And she's part of the alumni. And so we wrote the alumni, my cousin and I, and we said, do you all have any stories about this group that, that my, my uncle was in called the Newark Minutemen, who was a resistance group that actually fought this this uh, rising party and i got all these stories back about these yes my uncle was a nork minuteman he was a boxer he was a nork minuteman and so i got all all of those stories and then i found thousands of pages of only recently unsealed fbi documents that had testimony from everybody from the bund to the children in the nazi camps and um, archives from some of the Justice Department. And then one of the most interesting pieces that I found was these two brothers in Chicago. One was a newspaper man, one worked for the FBI. They were recruited by the newspaper to go undercover for six months. This is a couple of years before my story starts. So they went undercover really got into the inner circle and ended up writing this 14 page newspaper daily story. And I, I happened to, I'm really into ancestry and, and I went on and I created their family, the two brothers. And at the bottom, one of the footnotes was that the diaries of John and James Metcalf were in the Hoover Institute over here at Stanford. And so I said, okay, that's interesting. And, you know, I never really been to an archive before, but I became a member and I went over there and uh, it was unbelievable. I, I, I found these 12 boxes of diaries of the two brothers and I took, you know, a, well, I ended up meeting the, the son of one of the brothers and he gave me permission and I took some of the scenes that were 
again, chilling scenes of initiation and oaths, oaths to Hitler and notes, you know, there were little pieces of paper from restaurants where you could tell they were like turning and hiding and, and writing down notes that, you know, oh my God, I'm going to, you know, whatever they would find out. But anyway, I incorporated a lot of these stories into, into my story. So those were some of the, the big uh, pieces of information that I found. Yeah. So there's no shortage of information here. And, you know, you, you mentioned the FBI files have just recently been uh, unclassified, but the rest of it was out there. And there are people who were still alive who knew about this. So why is this a story that we don't know more about? You know, why why has it been? And especially for you, who's, whose uncle was part of this, why, why is this hidden history? Well, it's a great question, and I, I actually struggle with this question because it's amazing to me that it's not. And, you know, one knee-jerk reaction is, um, well, gosh, maybe it was just upstaged by what happened next. Um, but another reason I think it, it could be is that what happened was the reason that, first of all, this was allowed to happen in our country was because of First Amendment rights. The, you know, whether you were Nazi or communist or, or FDR, that was really socialist, whatever, whatever you were, I mean, because of First Amendment rights, you could go out there and do and say and look like what you wanted to on the surface. And our Supreme Court was so divided when anybody would challenge it not everything was just stuck. And so our government, what happened was they knew there was a huge threat coming. And so what they did was, so at the time, the real power in our country was the mafia, both the Italian and the Jewish mafia. And why? Well, you know, remember, this is the Great Depression. In 1929, there'd been a stock market crash. Everybody lost their money, except who? The mafia, because they became organized crime during the 20s, during Prohibition, walked away with all hundreds of millions of dollars in cash. So they had the money, they had the power, they controlled the elected officials. So our government went to them and, and they went to the Jewish mafia. They went to Meyer Lansky, who was like, um, you know, Al Capone was sort of in charge of the Italians. Meyer Lansky was in charge of the Jews. And they said, we, we need to do something about this. We need your help and we'll pay you. And Meyer Lansky said, you don't need to pay me. That's okay. Just look the other way and, <laughs> and we'll take care of this for you. And in fact, the Italian, uh, the Italian mafia offered and the Jewish mafia said, no, 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 we got this. And um, so what happened was Meyer Lansky, he was sort of head of the whole Jewish part of the, the mob. But one of his right-hand man, his name was Longy's Willman, and Longy controlled Newark, New Jersey. And Longy, in fact, was um, dollar-wise, I think the numbers are, he made more money at 22 years old, he started, than any other mob guy during the prohibition. So he's a very powerful guy, and he put the mayor in office and all that. And in the 30s, the mob also ran uh, sports betting. And 
Longy had the biggest um, den or network of, of boxers. And so he went and he talked to one of his retired boxers, Nat Arno, and they said, between Meyer and, and Longy and Nat, they're like, look, we've got this disciplined group of guys. They are a network. And um, if let, let's turn them into uh, our, our resistance group. And if we need one guy, if we need 10, if we need 100, 200, we can call them at a minute's notice, a la Newark Minuteman. And, and so that, that's what my, my uncle was a Newark Minuteman, you know, essentially working for the mob, called up to go out and either break up rallies of the Bund, um, take photos, surveil, um, go undercover. One of the, it was actually Nat Arno's son just sent me something recently. He just found it. It was on his father's letter letterhead. It was the North Minuteman letterhead. It said Nat Arno, president or whatever, commander. <clears throat> and um, one, of, uh, uh, one of the things that we had never had real proof of this. It was just anecdotal before, but on this document, literally, I would say a month ago, it just he found it and it was just published. There were actually notations of FBI guys that the FBI asked the North Minutemen to follow hmm. because there was always this sort of controversy. Was the FBI involved? Or were they not involved? I mean, to me, this is this is um, our stories where they were. But this is like proof that they were. So that's kind of hot off the presses. So. Okay, so to answer your question, why why was it, why wasn't this known? Well, it was a secret that the government did not want people to know. It was the mafia, and and often any time that news came up, Longy would say, "Go make sure that news doesn't get published," and it wouldn't. <laughs> and so that could be part of it. If you were to research this. You would find dribblings here and there, but unless you knew what you were looking for, it's it's really hard to find the story of the well. There's there's two parts of the story, right? There's the Nazi party that was taken over over America. Why was that buried? And then why was it buried about the Newark Minutemen who helped stop them and and rally um, other groups to help? So you've got all this information, this incredible story, uh, and the way you chose to present it was as a novel. So can you talk some about that uh, that decision, what, what that allows you to do with the story? Yes. So the genesis of my story, I actually first wrote uh, the screenplay, and then I wrote the novel. And so in the movie business, there's sort of this unwritten law that if you know you you can make a movie an action movie or more of an emotion movie and you know action movies are violent and 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 often seen as superficial and emotion movies are are often considered boring so (laughs) i i said okay i i want to mix this sort of violence and unrest with drama And so I decided to sort of a Titanic model, take a romantic, very like star-crossed relationship that's very um, full of conflict, 
layered over this time of conflict so that you have both. And my story, basically, it follows this this Jewish boxer who happens to fall in love with the daughter of the enemy. And uh, and so, you know, that's where the conflict is. Now, people often ask me, well, you know, is it true or is it not true or what part of it is true? And so my uh, what I what I sort of calculate is I I say basically 85 percent of my story is true and filled with facts and quotes and all of that, the hero, the hero and the heroine are both based on true characters or multiple characters. The love interest is fictionalized. And again, I did that to make it sort of attention-getting, epic, and also in hopes that it would maybe wake up, especially during these times, wake up people to being aware and perhaps wake up a little hero inside of you that if you are aware, you know, stand up and say something or, or do something or be somebody um, on whatever level, level that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, one of the interesting things, of course, about this story is that, uh, you know, when you think of like the Nazis and the people fighting them, it's like, okay, Nazis, bad guys, Americans fighting them, good guys. And this is such a more complicated, nuanced story because, you know, as you mentioned, these these are gangsters. <laughs> these are people who in their lives probably sometimes do things that are, you know, not all all good and pure. So what, can you talk a little bit about that and what, what that sort of nuance means and looks like and, you know, how, how you sort of write a story with, uh, you know, someone who's a gangster as the protagonist? Yes. So that's a very astute question of you. So you're right in that what we have here is, you know, bad guys versus bad guys. And at the time of the story, we didn't know how bad the Nazis were. So if you were reading this in 1935, you might say, well, I don't know whose side I'm on here because everybody's killing everyone. So what I what I actually did and and this is my first novel I, you know, I've started a couple of, but this is my first completed novel, I should say. And several editors said to me, the, my, my approach, which was because of your point, I decided to write this in four-person narration, both both bad guys, you know, being first person, and and it was it was hard. And and my editors kept saying, you know, this is too ambitious for you to do for a first novel. But I was like, no, because what I want people to say, I mean, it was ambitious, so they were right. But and I, I don't know if it's perfect, but I, I said, I want people to, to be empathetic to both sides until they know the punchline. And I wanted people to feel like the, the side of the mob that, you know, I wanted them to understand their motivations and their the things they did right and wrong and when they were sad and happy and the same thing on, on the Nazi side. And I wanted you to maybe be a little confused of whose, whose side I, I am on. I think the best job I did of that was the heroine. So it's basically four, four person perspective. It's the hero, the heroine, Longies Willman, who's the head of the mob and Fritz Kuhn, who's the head of the, the Germans Nazi, uh, German-American Nazis, I should say. And it's the heroine who 
is really the arc of the story who is the one who changes and she's the daughter of of the enemy and you know i've been told that it was a really interesting journey with her because at first you're like you know oh my gosh a jewish guy can better never be with her and then you watch her change and then other things happen. I won't give the whole thing away, but you discover other things that you're like, okay with that. But no, I, I, I think making, I mean, some of my favorite shows and movies and stories are the ones where you are sort of rooting for the villain. And uh, that was uh, an interesting exercise to try to get you to love him. Yeah. But but I, I also have to say something that one of one of the greatest actually um, things that happened was I got to spend so much time with my mom learning every single detail of her life and putting myself in her shoes. And I came away with this. Oh, my gosh, this was a parallel universe that you or I could never understand. It was a different time. And. It's almost hard to judge if, you know, your family was part of the mob or your family was part of the German-American Nazis or the communists or whoever, because you just didn't understand, You uh, again, who to believe, who to trust. And all you knew is you needed to put food on your children's table. And what was the route to do that? And especially a Jewish boys back then, or Jewish families too, you couldn't get hired, you couldn't go to school, you didn't have a lot of choices. So you boxed and the mob ran the boxers. And, you know, hopefully that's as far as you went, but some went farther. And I think it's dangerous for us to judge that sitting here comfortably shut in in our homes. Yeah. <laughs> <of> the pandemic. <laughs> I uh, I noticed in the acknowledgments that you said you learned to box uh, when you were uh, writing this. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, what, yeah, what it was like yeah. to learn to box and what perspective that gave you then? Yes. So I was I was writing these boxing scenes and I'm like, okay, I can read all I can about right hook, left hook, but I really wanted to understand what it felt like to be in a boxing environment. So I did it more kind of for that than the the actual punching part. But there was a local guy who unfortunately since has passed, but boy, he was uh, an archetype of his own. He was uh, maybe an 80-year-old guy who had been a boxer all his life in in part of our community. And he was just so, life was just so simple. You know, you get in the ring. You, you you follow the rules, you box, there's a winner, there's a loser. And some of the, the stories he told me, it, it was about more of the stories and about the the community that that really like sort of touched me and internalized. And there it's a brotherhood. It's a brotherhood. And in fact, there was a, a screenwriter as part of our team that was came up with this version of, of the story and, and he made it so that like the, the internal boxers, the mafia guys were going against each other. And I'm like, no, no, that just doesn't happen. You, you punch the guy and then, then you're friends. You said there's a brotherhood. Yeah. And I think that was my, my biggest takeaway other than maybe 
I don't, I don't think I got any black eyes, but I did get in the ring. I made my sister get in there with me too. So that was, maybe we did punch each other a little hard, but. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that this started with a screenplay. Uh, Is it being made into a movie? What's going on with that? Yeah. So, you know, with the last couple years here, we've had some steps forward and steps backwards, but we still have a, a team and right now we're just trying to find the best director i guess that this movie hasn't been moved out a year mm-hmm. that, that's what would have that's what happened we we had a great director his movie got pushed a year and so um we're talking of whether we should wait together or we're talking to some other folks too but it's sizzling it's still sizzling and and I'm not going to let it go it's it's so timely. It is such a timely story. And there's a, several different ways to approach it. You know, there's the epic Titanic, there's the Peaky Blinders type approach. There's the, you know, classic, more of a, not Inglorious Bastards. I would never try to get to that height of a movie, <laughs> but yeah. So we're trying to find now, move a couple of the, the puzzle pieces to see who can take it forward today. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure we could uh, keep talking about this all day, but uh, is there anything else that you want to definitely make sure we talk about? I guess just two things. One is, you know, these people often ask me who these boxers were, who these boys were. And um, during this time, Jewish boxers during the 20s and 30s, it was called the golden era of boxing. And Jewish boxers made up a third of all the fighters. And they won. Uh, It was 26 world titles, which was amazing, amazing number for back then. And people often ask me why. Why was, you know, Jewish boxers such a big ethnic group in the 20s and 30s? And I've sort of thought about that. and, and, And one thing was I said, okay, well, you know, these guys were sons of or sons or nephews or whatever of of these immigrants who had fled from from Russia with the Cossacks, you know, with, you know, attacking them and and all of that. And so they came from this DNA. But the other thing was just a practical reason was that I mentioned just a second ago that back then an 18 year old, 16, 17, 18 year old, 20, whatever year old Jewish boy didn't have a lot of opportunities. And so it was money. And, you know, they would get a hundred dollars a fight or sometimes even more the Minutemen used to get a hundred dollars every time they went out you know there are stories of by the time a guy was 22 he saved five thousand dollars in the bank so you know again it was this interesting community of Mm -hmm. uh, of 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 guys and then the other thing is my biggest lesson is was uh I was so fortunate to have my mom around to get this story truly when I did. And I'm so lucky that she's, she is still around at her age. And, and so my, my message is go out and talk to your parents, your aunts, your uncles, all that generation and get that legacy because it's, it's just amazing to understand who you are and where you came from and how history repeats itself, unfortunately, or fortunately. So um, that's that's one of my big takeaways. And how can people get your book? 
it's been out now for a year plus the paperback and the ebook's been a little bit longer. So you can go on anywhere that you would get a book online and, and some of the stores, but certainly Amazon, Barnes and Noble and all that. And I do have a website that I've, I've tried to put a lot of the backstory up if, if anybody's interested in this further. And there's a, several talks that I do there, newspaper articles uh, and updates about the movie. And that basically is uh, the website is Newark, as in Newark, New Jersey, NewarkMinutemen.com. And by the way, if anybody hears this that has people from their family that were Minutemen, there's a there's a way to send um, me a message on my website. Please do that. And I have a gallery of pictures of Minutemen that I'm making, you know, getting bigger and bigger. So I'd love to anybody who 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 has stories or 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 photos of their uncles or grandfathers or whatever that were Minutemen, please send along. Excellent. I will definitely put a link uh, to your website and uh, for people to find the book as well. It's it's just such a, a fascinating story. <laughs> I you know I, I'm still wrapping my head around the fact that it really happened, um, but <laughs> really yeah. really excited to have learned about it. Thank you, and thank you for. Um, I'm glad I found your website because I I love the whole unsung history and finding out about our our uh, our legacy as a country as well. Yeah. Well, Leslie, thank you so, so much for speaking with me. All righty. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW.